page 245, Judges chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 1, the whole way to verse 24. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jebin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hezor. Sisera, the commander of his army, who was based in Harasheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 chariots filled with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Raham and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, the Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the river Kishon, and give them into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and ten thousand men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Hananam near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go! This is the day the Lord has given to, given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tamar with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and army by the swords. And Sisera got down for his chariots and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots as far as Harasheth Agoyim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jeel, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jebin, king of Hezor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes in and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer, and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then Barak came in by pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man that you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. 
On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Please turn to um, Judges chapter 5, if you would. That would be good because, well, I'll explain why in a moment, but you need to be there. You need to have sight of that, not just... Uh, judges for in the service sheet. So I hope this Bible's enough in the pews. I'm taking it that we've prayed actually because we sang that song asking for God to reign in us. Every time we come to the, the Bible, it is uh, in effect an acknowledgement that He has the right to rule us. We're saying, Lord, your will be done as we sing that song. And that's the attitude of heart as we turn to the Bible this evening. But I'm going to start by um, telling you about a bit of cultural uh, thinking that I've done, uh, courtesy of a friend. I'm always about 10 years behind. I rely on Josh to keep me up to the mark in terms of sort of cultural comment. And uh, I didn't even go to him at this point. This is about 10 years out of date. But um, there was a British TV double act about 10 years ago called Mitchell and Webb. And some of you will have seen some of their stuff. I only came across it because I was reading in uh, uh, a magazine recently and got nudged in their direction to watch a, a much-loved sketch of theirs called Are We the Baddies? Which is set in World War II. Um, I'll tell you the story of it. It's a sort of German SS unit. They're about to face some Russian troops. But one German soldier turns nervously to a buddy and asks, Hans, have you looked at our caps recently? Uh, hats, whatever they call them. And um, then he carries on. Hands, have you noticed the badges on our hats? Have you noticed they have skulls on them? Actual pictures of skulls on our hats. Hands, are we the baddies? And it's not long before the penny drops and they conclude we really are the baddies. At which point, when no one's looking their courage suddenly disappears and they quietly abandon their post and run off into the night. In a war, the troops want to be convinced of the rightness of their cause. That's presumably what motivates them in many cases, to know that they're fighting for the homeland, to know that they are protecting the innocent from hostile forces, that sort of thing. That would go for international conflicts on the world stage. Of course, that'd be true. But I wonder if you'd agree, too, that it also affects how we perceive a bigger cosmic spiritual warfare, which affects all of us. And maybe you need to be convinced that such a war exists and that we're all involved. But the Bible repeatedly speaks about the spiritual conflict which rages in our world between a mighty, sovereign God and dark forces in our world. And it would say to all of us, even if we're not particularly aware of it, that Christians are part of that conflict, so is everybody else. But do you ever ask, therefore, are we the baddies? Whose side am I really on? Those sorts of questions. I was trying to think about this a bit more. Christians used to be mocked and have been mocked down the ages. They've been mocked as sincere, even if wrong. And that mockery was irritating. But basically, Christians used to be considered, in our culture at least, as harmless. 
people would say to us, I wish I had your faith, Simon, in conversation. In other words, I don't believe what you believe, Simon, but at least I admire your sincerity. So it was sort of polite indifference, not particularly sort of, not much animosity in that kind of talk. Today, Christians are more likely to face the charge that they are actually the baddies in our world. What we believe is regressive and oppressive. It's not just harmless, but harmful. And people are almost asking us that question. Haven't you noticed that there's a skull on your hat, Christians? You're wearing a skull on your uniform. There's something deadly about what you believe and how you're uh, fighting for it. And in that situation, it takes a good deal of courage to stick at the fight if you're convinced of the fight's rightness. It would take even more courage to turn the question back to other people and get them to ask the question of themselves, are they the baddies? Well, this section of the Bible in Judges, it raises a similar question for all of us to consider, whether or not we are God's people tonight. Uh, We call the series Tales from the Dark Ages. There's a, a political conflict in all the different stories in Judges, but spiritual warfare going on as well. And the question gets raised again and again, whose side are we on? And It's not always easy to discern, is it? Perhaps you felt last week with Ehud, the left-handed assassin, that there was a question over whether God's appointed judge was 100% what we might expect of God's people, the way he carries on. I guess this is even more pronounced in this week's section. I have visions of how the tabloid press might cover the story. Woman takes General Sisera down a peg or two. This is intense. Talk about a splitting headache. It's a pretty gruesome story, isn't it? Are we meant to be on her side? Are there lessons to learn by example from her? A question forms in our minds. Should we really be enjoying this story? If it was on YouTube, are we actually meant to like this? Whose side are we on? Well, let's look into the story to get under the headlines a bit. In fact, the way it's written helps us because the story gets told twice. We had the historical account in chapter 4. We had that read to us. And God's name is mentioned once or twice there, but it's mainly narrative. It's a list of the facts as they unfold. In chapter 5, we get the song of Deborah the prophet praising God after the event. And... She retells what has happened explicitly with the eye of faith. So we're going to need to turn it up in our Bibles and add that into what we have already read. With chapter 5 alongside chapter 4, it becomes clearer what we're intended to learn from the whole episode. And if you've been with us on Sunday nights, you will recognize the direction of travel in my three headings. The starting point is depressingly familiar, a repeated Surrender to sin. That's the first heading this evening. A repeated surrender to sin. You might remember how that word again has featured in the story. Well, it comes again in the first verse of our section in chapter 4, verse 1. Do you see it there? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. 
say that all we really learn from history is that no one ever learns anything from history, which was certainly true in ancient Israel. The historian George Santayana put that in a slightly more erudite form. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, he said. But I like the short poem by Steve Turner slightly more. History repeats itself. Has to. Nobody listens. Israel was deaf to the repeated lesson that we've seen in the last two weeks. That when you turn from God personally or nationally, there are serious consequences. As a nation, they'd surrendered to the culture around them and allied themselves with false gods, with terrible results. We saw that when God gave them up to 18 years under the thumb of King Eglon the Great. He really was Eglon the Great. He was a very big guy. Nobody would want to be under the thumb of that heavy, oppressive rule. And they cried out to God, and he raised up Ehud as a judge, and God delivered them, and 80 years of peace followed. Then another spiritual surrender follows. Prosperity must have dulled their spiritual memories, as often happens, and not long after Ehud dies, they again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So chapter 4, verse 2, says this, The Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. This time their enemy is up in the north of the land, although his army under General Sisera is, is stationed slightly further south. With the Iron Age equivalent of tanks, 900 top-of-the-range iron chariots. Nobody's going to mess with him. Hence the description of life in the land. Now, I want to ask you to turn on to Deborah's song. And we'll see a little picture of life in the land at this stage. Chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. We don't sing many songs like this, but this is a song that she sang and Barak with her after the victory. Chapter 5, verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates. But not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So what's the situation here? Well, village life had ground to a standstill. The main roads were all too dangerous to travel. So everyone who had to make journeys took wiggly alternatives. You know those alternative routes they plot for you on Google Maps, which take longer. And that's what they were having to do there because it wasn't safe to travel on the main roads. No one put up any fight at all. If you had a weapon, you made sure nobody saw it if you liked life. Why cause trouble? Well, what had happened? Well, they had surrendered spiritually. And there's a case for translating verse 8 slightly differently, like this. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, because it was apostasy. They were abandoning the true and living God and surrendering to new spiritual powers. That's what had brought this disaster on them. 
But it's not so hard to believe that they were such slow learners, repeating the same lessons as we've seen again and again. Not when you think about our own surrenders to sin. I don't know what it is in your case. That loss of temper, again. Or succumbing to porn on the internet, again. That fatal click from a reasonable website to a treasonable one, where you're turning from God and his love to a cheap imitation of the real thing. It seems to me the surrender of the Israelites is actually very true to life. And it's played out in our own lives. In their case, it blinds them to the awfulness of the situation. It was 20 years this time till they cried out to God for help. And even then, it was a mixed response. So that's my second heading. First heading, a repeated surrender to sin. Secondly, the mixed response of God's people. The mixed response of God's people. Which you might have predicted with the stories we've seen last week. Eud, that was a similar thing. This week it's Deborah's turn. It's a pretty mixed, mixed response to what goes on. Deborah, the only female judge. Barak, who's been called the reluctant hero. Although I think you've got to sympathize with him. When Deborah summoned him, what she laid before him wasn't particularly appealing. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, Barak, is to raise an army of 10,000 and take them out to battle while God lures the enemy into a nice flat valley, a river valley. Barak knows enough about fighting to know that a river valley is perfectly suited to chariots, which the enemy has. So it's reasonable enough in one sense that he's a reluctant hero. Interesting, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, he gets listed as a hero of the faith. He was willing to go, but his condition, only if Deborah put her money with her mouth and showed she believed in God's victory enough to come with him. And that was why Deborah rebuked him, saying that God would give them victory, but that God would hand over Sisera, the general, to a woman. I think we all assume that that will be Deborah. In fact, there's a surprise twist in the story, isn't there? Slightly different uh, woman uh, is in mind there. Anyway, Barak is a reluctant hero, but lots of the other Israelites never even venture out of their doors, it seems. Let me read on, because this wouldn't have appeared to us unless we read in chapter 5. Verse 12. Wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, Barak, take captives your captives, son of Abinoam. This is a list of those that do support Barak. The remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar there were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. But then some who are much more reluctant in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead, 
stayed beyond Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. So the northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, well, they were quick to fight. They were directly under the cosh from Jabin, king of Hazor, and some others joined them, Issachar, Benjamin, Ephraim. But at this point in the story, God's people aren't all standing together. And in this point in their history, that happens quite a bit. As we read on through the book of Judges, you'll see this. The tribes aren't pulling together in all the different episodes of this period. They aren't acting as a united people under one God. So his example here, Reuben, there's lots of searching of hearts. Should we? Shouldn't we? I'm not sure if we should join up. Hard to say. What we need to do is have a little committee to talk about this, and then uh, we'll get back to you. Is that okay? Gilead? Well, they're cheering. Three cheers for your efforts, everybody. But we can't come all that way. There's a dirty great river in the way for us to get to you. Cross the River Jordan. Get serious. Dan? Well, he's busy with his yachts at the coast. Asher, he's having a seaside holiday as well, that tribe. And the same reluctance to get involved plays out in our own day. What a great idea to put on a course for exploring Christianity. Hope explored, great idea. But I'm sorry, I'm not able to bring someone along. Or maybe uh, there's a different uh, issue in your mind at the moment. Going to church, that doesn't make anybody a Christian, does it? Besides, nowadays there's no need for me actually to show up at church in person. Surely Zoom suits me better. Now I've discovered that way of doing things. In fact, catching up on YouTube is even more convenient when I actually remember to do that. And easily, in that sort of reasoning, the church is left under fighting strength, particularly when we focus on our problems. We find it convenient to keep a low profile and hold back from joining forces with other believers. Well, in Israel, the resistance army is finally in place, but it doesn't look good. Remember, they've got no spears or shields. More likely, they were just armed with pickaxes and swords. So what happened is even more remarkable. Here's a third point. The Lord is victorious. I think it's a similar trajectory to what we've seen in Judges so far, isn't it? A surrender. The people of God surrender. A mixed response by God's people. But oh yes, the Lord is absolutely victorious. He's on the throne. Let me choose a couple of bits from chapter 5. Just dotting around a bit. Verse 4. Notice who's marching here. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. So there'd been rain. Rain is not great for chariots. Rather like those Russian tank convoys which got stuck in the mud north of Kiev. But this wasn't just a case of brilliant tactics by Barak or elementary mistakes by Sisera. It was the Lord marching at the head of Israel's army. And of course, he can summon the clouds. 
rivers, even the stars of the heavens in his victory campaign. Let me read verses 19 to 22. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping, go his mighty steeds in devastating retreat. So as the story unfolds, it's with the death of Sisera that things really come to the crunch. If you don't mind another pun. Sisera has ditched the chariot. He's making his getaway on foot. Suddenly he sees um, what must be a safe place. There's an alliance between the Kenites and Jabin, his king, his uh, chief uh, ruler up in the north. And what's more, this guy Heber, there's a funny little verse in our reading, just one verse on him saying that Heber the Kenite has moved from the rest of his tribe up to this place. Well, we see what's going on in that story. It's something that God has laid on, isn't it? Sisera sees this place. It looks like a safe place for him to get in there because it's a, somebody that's in this alliance. But he didn't bargain on jail. Let me read verse 24 onwards. And it almost calls out for sound effects, if you don't mind me doing this, the way the poem is written. Most blessed of women be jail, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. I just feel there's a sort of crunch to the, the poetry there. At her feet he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. So she's an unlikely hero, except that God is using her. Deborah, Barak, the river Kishon, the clouds of heaven, and Jael to fight his battles for his people. Now, you might remember something similar when another prophetic woman celebrated a victory. It's quite like this uh, song here with Deborah's song matching Miriam's song. Miriam in Exodus 15 sings, As Egyptian bodies are scattered on the shore of the Red Sea, the horse and its rider, he, God, has hurled into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. I wonder if it fits with your image of God, that he is victorious in this sort of way. He's the Lord of hosts, and that's not just a hashtag nickname for God. It comes 300 times in the Old Testament. 
And strikingly, in the New Testament, it's the kind of language we find describing the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me read some words from Colossians chapter 2 that speak of victory won when Jesus died at his weakest. God made you, you Colossians, alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemns us. He'd taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In paying for our sins, Jesus was defeating the devil. And in that sense, the cross was the place of spiritual, supernatural victory. Similar to Sisera's defeat in the landscape of Israel, that was just pointing on to what Jesus would do at the cross. A warrior God marching out in power to defeat his people's enemies. And the flip side is really important for us to think it through. If Jesus had not done so at Calvary, we would be lost for all eternity, defeated. So let me ask that question we began with again. Are we the baddies? These tales from the Dark Ages are asking us to face that kind of question. Whose side are we on? We'll never be able to take on God and win. There's a psalm that says, when human powers like Jabin take on God, heaven laughs. It's a joke. He can as easily put a tent peg and a mallet in the hands of a woman and defeat his enemy that way as he can put an army of chariots in the mud. Or as easily again, he can use the execution of his son, Jesus Christ to send the spiritual forces of hell to their eternal doom. He is almighty, the Lord of hosts. So don't fight against him, please. Instead, doesn't this chapter call on all of us to join the battle with God? Whoever we are, known or unknown, there are all sorts of different characters involved in this story, male or female, young or old, in sacred or secular employment, because there was a prophet, just somebody who was handy in offering milk and blankets as well. as no sort of clear distinction between who can serve God's purposes. God can use the unlikeliest of people. That distinction of sacred and secular doesn't really hold in the Bible at all. And the question gets raised, do you believe that he has a place for you in his plans? Answer, he does. He has a plan for your life, his plan. So judges are saying, don't play safe. Don't stay at home like Reuben and Gilead and Dan and Asher. Hide away and hope nobody will notice you. Be like Deborah and Barak and Jael. Face your fears and join forces with Almighty God. Never mind whether God is on our side. If he's a warrior God and he's won the decisive battle in the war at the cross, the question ought to be, are we on his side? Let's pray together.
when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves. Praise the Lord. We want to end our service in praise, almighty God, because you are the mighty Lord of hosts. We thank you that the forces of evil are defeated by virtue of Jesus' death on the cross for us. We thank you that he's alive today on the throne of heaven. We thank you that we have nothing to fear ultimately. And we pray that you'd help us to sign up, to join up, to battle on, and to do so with praise in our hearts and on our lips. We pray it, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.